Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is June the 2nd, 2021. It is a Wednesday. And today for you I have a uh, listener roundtable. This is where there's some questions from the audience, but there's also just some things that I've observed. Kind of a variety show, no guests, just me. And uh, here's what I've got on deck for you today. I've got a really great quote from Winston Churchill. And I think this is a good time to talk about courage in this light. And it's not about, you know, fighting them on the shores and, and all that. This is a, a, a far lesser known quote by Churchill. Uh, then I have something, somebody, something that no one is telling you about the COVID death numbers that are still being reported. Like, you know, 42 people died yesterday or 32 people died or 15 people died yesterday in Texas or what have you. Um, I know this is true in Texas. It's probably true just about everywhere. Uh, but Texas is uh, upfront about their lies if you look at the data. And they're really not lying at all. It's just how those numbers are then used by others in reporting supposedly new deaths from COVID. Um, I don't know that anybody's talking about this, and certainly no one in mainstream media uh, is talking about this or will ever talk about it. It's a pretty short segment, but just something to understand how you're being manipulated still. Um, also, I have a question about choosing a username for a service like ProtonMail, kind of best practices there. And I want to, again, reiterate something I've, I've talked about before, but I think it's really important that people understand this, the limits of encrypted emails, what, what, what really that does for you and what it doesn't do for you. My thoughts on the cyber attack on JBS uh, meat processing. I'll tell you my thoughts on that, why I'm not worried, but I'm worried. And so just some things to think about in this that, I, again, I, I try to give you the stuff that I don't think anybody else is talking about in the MSM or the alternative media world. Uh, I have a real concern about COVID vaccines, and I think that we might or might not see this happen. But it's one of the bigger concerns that I have. I'm not worried about Bill shedding his spike proteins and, and them getting me. Um, and I'm not worried about the COVID that we have with us. And I'm not concerned about natural mutations of COVID. But I am concerned about the potential for the vaccine itself to cause mutations. And I think there's some... Real reasons to believe that. Uh, I have an email to me from a colonel and another one from a sergeant first class with their opinion about my theory that the United States military is currently running a PSYOP on senior, N senior NCOs and field grade and above officers, people that have been in the military for a long time, people that are not part of the wokeness. Uh, under the auspices of getting rid of extremism and white supremacism and this claim that they're going to throw them out, and it's all just a PSYOP designed to make them quit. And uh, this will be interesting. And these two emails are just a couple of dozens that have come in since I did that segment, and they all pretty much say the same thing. So we'll talk about a couple of them, and, and I think it kind of shows you that, yeah, you know, what I said is probably true. Uh, next, a little quick segment. I don't have any articles or anything to go with this, but my gut is Dr. Anthony Fauci is about to go under the bus. He's about to go under the bus, and I mean from the left-wing media. They're about to throw him under the bus, and they're about to back that bus back and forth over him about 50 times before they ride off and forget about him. I'll tell you why I think that's coming and why I think they would do it. And then I have a message that's pretty sad about our family, something that happened over Memorial Day weekend that I haven't talked about yet, um, and uh, just a farewell to a friend. Anyway, with that, let's start off with this quote by Winston Churchill. Um, sorry about that drawn-out um and a little bit of a delay there. I, I realized I have the uh, wrong graphic in the uh, post for today. Uh, this, this is the quote by Churchill that I was referring to. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. And there's there's two primary ways that you could take this quote, and I think the first way is the way most people would take it. It takes courage to stand up and speak. That's pretty obvious. 
But it is also what it takes when you need to be quiet and listen and hear. And I think what people would often take from that is that a person would lack the courage to find out that they were wrong on the principle of being wrong alone. And that's that's where the lack of courage comes. I, I don't really take it that way. I take it a little bit of a different way. It, it, it's the same but different, man. Um, people are afraid to be wrong because of what it will mean if they're wrong. And this is why we cl cling so much to our perception biases and and our normalcy bias. So if we are deeply vested in a thing, we've put money or time or effort into it, or all three, because we believed in it, and someone wants to tell us something bad about it, we generally don't want to hear it. We want to write it off. We want to close it off. We don't want to. But it's not so much because we don't wish to be wrong. It's because we don't like what it means in our life if it turns out that we're wrong. And it happens in a lot of places, far more than political spectrum. If you think about something like your diet, if someone tells you that it's really not healthy to be eating rice and beans and bread and corn chips and things like that, but you've always believed as long as it's organic and whole grain, it's fine, you know, um, then it's very hard for you to accept that you could be wrong. Even though being wrong might be the best thing that ever happened to you. If you found out that a more natural, more human way of eating would would cure your diseases, you'd think the person would be happy about being wrong. But what being wrong means is a world without bread in it. And even though everybody that eventually does it is like, yeah, big deal. I don't care. I don't miss it anymore. When you're addicted to the carbohydrate, just like being addicted to a drug, it's a very scary world. It takes courage to accept that you, you could be wrong about that. And needing to listen generally goes along with potentially being wrong, either because one believes something that's not true solely based on what they've been taught in life, or often it stems from not having sufficient information to draw a logical conclusion. And it does take courage. And the longer you believe something, the longer you've said something, the more vested you've become in that thing, the more difficult it is to shut up and listen. Here's an example from my own life. I got through it pretty quick, but man, it was... I didn't want this to be wrong, even though I knew better. The boiling frog analogy. Probably 10 years of my corporate life doing presentations, and I would routinely do presentations in front of anywhere from you know, 20 or 30 to 300 to 1,000 people at a time. I did speaking engagements at major trade shows, did keynote addresses, things like that in front of large groups, uh, lunch and learns with distributors. I mean, just like my job was to present. I was in sales. And even when I moved into the world of marketing, I was very quickly own the company, and then you're out marketing your own company, so you're speaking, etc. And in that time period, in that decade, I must have told the story of the boiling frog, using it as a teaching tool hundreds of times, whether it was about motivation or whether it was about being complacent with something like your marketing. Because you're complacent, you're sitting there like a frog, and you don't notice the temperature. We all know the boiling frog analogy, right? You know the boiling frog analogy, do you? You put the frog in the pot, You turn the, the heat up really, really, really slow. The frog never tries to get out of the pot until it dies. And it never knew you were turning up the heat. And that's how the government controls us, or that's how we become complacent and other things. So there was no cost to me being wrong. And I knew I was wrong. I should have never doubted that the, the analogy is a lie. See, if you put a frog in water and begin to slowly increase the temperature, as soon as it, it becomes at a temperature that would be uncomfortable for that animal, it tries to get out. It does not sit there unaware because you've turned the, the temperature up. So are you mad now? Are you, are you screaming and yelling that this is true? It's not true. And here's how I knew it wasn't true. As many of you know, I, going all the way back to childhood, I have loved reptiles and amphibians. I'm an amateur herpetologist. I've even worked at the Philadelphia Zoo as a volunteer when I was a teenager. Um... And I have kept literally hundreds of animals. And you set up a, a, a terrarium, a cage, a habitat for 
a frog, a salamander, a snake, a lizard, a turtle, whatever. You always create a thermogradient. That means that you have a hot side and a cold side and a Goldilocks zone somewhere in between the two. So if we have a, a, a cage set up for frogs, you know, one side will have like either a warming stone or a thermal light or something like that. And the other side we won't. We won't heat the whole cage. We'll heat one side of the cage. So the animal can choose the place that it wants to be. And all reptiles and amphibians, since they're cold-blooded, need to thermoregulate. If they were unable to thermoregulate, if they didn't have the ability to know they needed to thermoregulate, they would either overheat or freeze to death all the time, and they wouldn't exist. It's asinine that I ever believed it, but since everybody said it all the time, and it made a good teaching tool, and I had adopted it, every time I put it in a PowerPoint, every time I set it in front of a room, it became more and more difficult for me to have the courage to shut up and listen when somebody said it wasn't true. But to cease doing the thing, which was reinforcing the wrong idea, using it, and causing other people to repeat it, causing other people to repeat it, I needed to have the courage to listen. Now, that was a little one. That's not like being wrong about the food you've chosen to eat your whole life or being wrong about the way you've chosen to vote your whole life. or being. You see what I'm saying? The courage to face being wrong is not about the egg on your face. It's about accepting the consequences of your action over time were negative. And I encourage every person, to always listen to counter-arguments, as long as they're logical and based in some semblance of reality. Oh, and if you doubt me on the boiling frog, the Mythbusters took that on and busted the myth. The actual, like, Adam and Jamie TV show, those guys, yeah, they proved that to be completely false. So here's what I wanted to talk about with COVID on the death numbers. Um, I keep an eye on what's going on with the state of Texas on a website that is really well done that they use. It's, it's data-driven. It produces charts and things like that and graphs, and, and it's, it's well-maintained and well-updated. And, for instance, these guys said yesterday 15 deaths, uh, newly reported fatalities, Fatalities, and that's an important. They are saying it properly. Newly reported fatalities in the state of Texas, and they seem to be not as bad recently as I've seen them in the past. But I'm, I'm stalling right now because I'm trying to look this up for an example for you. If you go into their little graph, you can see each day how many people were reported as being a fatality. And for instance, today is what, 6262, right? June the 2nd. And I am finding a newly reported fatality on 423. Is that right? I want to be accurate here. 423, one reported fatality. So that means that somebody who has been dead since April 23rd is in that number 15 for. Yesterday. Yep. And I'll tell you how bad it's been. I have been in there within the past couple weeks and found people reported as newly reported fatalities with dates of death in December of 2020 and January of 2021. Four or five months, this person's been in the ground and gone, and now they're a COVID fatality. I don't know if it's Karen and records finally got the billing coded right so they could get their money from the government. I don't know if it's complete bullshit. What I do know is it's not representative of the facts. That if you see something like 15 newly reported fatalities, and if you go over to like World Meter, they'll just say 15 people died. They'll, they'll put up a graph using the same data that would infer to you that 15 people died yesterday in the state of Texas. Now, the total number of, re of reported fatalities yesterday from COVID in the state of Texas right now, as of 6-1-2021, is zero. And that really would be May 31st. There are no numbers. The most recent number reported uh, was one fatality on 528. 
And that's in that 15 number. That's a, that's a newly reported fatality. And I'll put a link to this map if you want to take a look at it. Um, when you when you click the link, you'll land on like the main page with, with an overview, and there's tabs along the bottom, and the second tab is trends, and that's the one where you can dig into this data uh, a, a little bit deeper. And you'll see that there are you know fatalities, newly reported uh, newly reported fatalities, and incomplete data where they say like we have newly reported fatalities, but we don't think it's complete yet. Whatever the hell they mean by that. In any event, what's continuing to happen and what has been happening this entire time is you'll get a day where there's like, well, 380 people died. And you go look at it, and it turns out that the number of fatalities is more like 120, 130. I, I get that every life matters. I understand this. You don't have to explain this to me. Um, you know, we'll leave out the fact that the average age of a person that died from COVID during this entire thing was 88. Uh, which is older than the, the, the median age of death in America. We'll leave that out. We'll leave out the comorbidities. It's still mis, it's still misinformation. It's still a fenord. You're, you're inferring there was this huge, like, death toll. And you're dating, you're back dating deaths and, and issuing the cause of death three, four, in some cases five months after the person passed away. Now I'm sorry. When you have people dying of a disease in a pandemic, you know what happened when they die. You know what happened when they die. You don't have to take two months, three months, four months to figure out if this person died from COVID. And the reason these numbers are like this, and it's been the case the entire time, is what the CDC and the World Health Organization and the government as a whole, and the state governments as a whole, and all the hospitals wanting to grub the money have used to define the definition of a COVID fatality. Now, this you probably have heard before, but their definition of a COVID fatality. And again, executives from the CDC have said this, and not roundabout. They've said it directly. A COVID fatality is defined as an individual who died and at the time of death had COVID. Now, we all know that there's massive numbers of asymptomatic COVID, meaning healthy people that would test positive for the virus for some portion of time. Because they were exposed, they're producing antibodies, or they're having T-cell reaction to it. The virus is in their body, but it's causing no symptoms, no ill health, no nothing. So if that person happened to have a disease that they died of, They're still, they're literally testing every person that dies, whether there's reason to believe it was a COVID death or not. Now, if you have a person right now, especially four or five months ago, with heavy pneumonia, etc., that passed away in ICU trying to be saved, odds are they probably did have COVID. And those people were certainly being tested when they come in. But here's my other thing about this post-dated death crap. Right now, I know for a fact, if you go to a hospital in Texas, for any reason, you're tested for COVID. Period. Now, there could be a delay in getting the results back. I mean, most of the hospitals are using rapid tests for this purpose because if somebody's going to be in the hospital for two days and it takes like three days to get the results back, the person's already out. See how that works, right? But... You could put some delay in there, but you're not going to have a delay of three, four months. And I invite you to go look at this for yourself. And again, today, we're only going back to 423, but again, it's June 2nd. But follow it for a little while. Bookmark it. Go check it out over a few days and watch the variances happen. Um, on the days where there's you know significant numbers and that green uh, bar is pretty high, You might have to blow the map up and look, but you'll see little white specks. Little white specks on top of the green graph. And you go over there and say one or two fatalities. You know, 60, sometimes 90, sometimes 100 days prior to the day the death is being reported. This is bullshit. And it's been bullshit. But it's, for those of you that have family members and friends who are iffy on this, they're starting to doubt it, it's a good place to have them look. And you have to ask yourself, why has nobody pointed this out? Again, the CDC lady said, let's say you had somebody that had cancer, 
This is exactly what she said. It's not a perfect quote, but it's exactly what she said. Let's say you had somebody that had cancer, terminal. They'd gone into hospice care. They, they had, when you go into hospice, you're basically being given palliative care until you die. Not in case you die or if you die, until you die. There's these occasional miracles where somebody goes into hospice and, and, and comes out of it and doesn't die. It's exceedingly rare. When you go to hospice, it is, you have been basically told there's nothing we can do. You're going to pass away and relatively quickly. And the people that do that job, my God, if there are angels that walk this earth, it is them to go from person to person, day to day, over and over again, knowing every person you deal with is going to pass away soon and go through pain and suffering, and you're there to lessen it, and you do it every day. The respect I have for those people is amazing. But, again, she said, if you go into hospice for cancer, and while you're under hospice, you get COVID and you die, we call it a COVID death. What COVID death has come to mean is a person died with COVID, not a person died of COVID. And again, you can take away the comorbidity argument. You can take away all of that. If the person did not die due to the disease, they shouldn't be in that number, and they always have been. The number that you're being told, 600,000 Americans, like, and they make it sound like people cut down in the prime of their life, is a bullshit number. It's always been a bullshit number. And I know someone out there right now is slamming the keyboard about to send me an angry message about the 48-year-old that was their best friend. That, I am sorry that happened. And every year, every single year, there are healthy people, for one reason or another, that are hit with some sort of coronavirus rhinovirus, influenza virus, some other random infection that normally people do well with and they die. And we don't close down society for it. And we don't lie about it in the statistics to make a case to control society. It's just one example that they've never told you and never said anything about. Uh, next up, I got an interesting email. This was for John Bush, but I'm going to handle it. I have just gotten a ton of questions for John Bush on digital privacy and cryptocurrency, and I don't want to bury the new guy right out of the gate. I think I can handle this one pretty good. I do need more expert panel questions, by the way, guys. I got a bunch in uh, asking for them yesterday, uh, but I definitely need some for Amy Dingman on parenting and homeschooling and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, this one, again, came in for John. I'm going to take it. And it is from Casper, and I don't know if that's a real name or not, especially based on the uh, the way the question's asked, but what should I consider when choosing a new email username? Would this be a digital privacy question for John Bush? I want to start a ProtonMail email account, but I haven't been able to decide on the username. I've heard arguments for and against using my real name, and I'm open to using something other than a person's name. Uh, and he gives me an example, which I won't use. Let's say Roundbox uh, at ProtonMail.com. That way I made it up myself. Somebody's going to go get that email now. Roundbox. I want that Roundbox at ProtonMail.com. Anyway, uh, kind regards. Uh, it actually, it says Calvin. Okay. So here's the deal. If you use your real name, if I did Jack.Spirico at ProtonMail.com, especially with a name like Jack Spirico versus a name like John Smith, it would be pretty obvious that's probably my email. Yeah? Does this matter in the possession of the email box itself? Well, probably not. I think ProtonMail is about as solid as it gets on encryption, and I think they have a stellar reputation. Uh, and I, I think they're about as good as you can do using a third-party service. All right? The issue with using something that would be solidly identifying you as you with something like a ProtonMail account is, that would also then potentially identify you anywhere you use that email where it was displayed or shared elsewhere. So if you set up an anonymous account with, you know, I don't know, diddlydoodah.com, right, and you use that email address, and that email address then was shared with third parties, shared with the government, shared publicly, then... If you were trying to call yourself, you know, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right, to, to cover up who you were, that would be using part of your name and probably not the best practice, but you were trying to do that. No one really knows who Calvin and Hobbes at diddlydoodah.com is, you know, as a username. 
But if it has associated with jack.spirit.protonmail.com, that's probably jack. That's kind of the reason to not do it. I would say if you're worried about anonymity at all, don't do it. Create some random bullshit um, thing. And I would say don't do something that's really like people that knew you would know that's kind of something he would use. right? Now, the other side of it. An email address is only useful if someone knows what it is so they can email you. So someone's going to know. We have to like come to grips with we're not going to you know evade the NSA on everything that we do or something like that. And and the good news is the, the NSA is probably not watching everything you do. Right? Don't don't think you're as important as some people seem to think they are. But there are best practices, and I wouldn't. But I want to reiterate something about things like a proton mail email. If I have proton mail and you have proton mail, and we email each other back and forth, it's about as secure as email can be. Yes, it is. Okay? It really is. It really, 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 really is. However, if you have Hotmail or Gmail or whatever, and I'm emailing you from my ProtonMail account, well, it's about as secure as Gmail or Yahoo or Hotmail. That's how, exactly how secure it is. Because since it's a two-direction communication, whether you've sent me an email and I've just received it and I haven't replied to it, Well, now it's over here on Hotmail, right? If I send it to you and it's, you don't respond to it, well, it's over there on Hotmail now, even though I sent it from ProtonMail, right? And if I email and you email it back, then it's still on your side. So I think we have to be really careful with this idea that, well, since I use ProtonMail, my email is encrypted and no one can read it. No one can see it. No one can touch it. What I do personally, is I run an email client and I pull my mail off my server very, very, very frequently. This does not come without some level of compromise. Because that means if I'm somewhere else and I need to check on something, it's sitting on the computer that has the client, it's no longer on my server, therefore I can't get it either. This doesn't make it uber super secure, but it does mean if some hacker breaks into my email server, they'll get maybe two minutes worth of email, uh, and you know they could sit on there and keep getting it, I guess. But as soon as we would determine that we'd been hacked and we bounce the hacker, the damage they can do is limited at that point. Where what most people do is they keep all their email in the cloud somehow, on some server somewhere. And what that means is that that server is an obvious target, even if it's ProtonMail. Now, it might be a lot harder to hack ProtonMail, but even if it's ProtonMail. And I just want to reiterate, please understand, you do not have encrypted email communications, I should say, unless both sides are encrypted. Now, there is something that you can do that's kind of like a modern digital dead drop. And that is instead of sending mails, you can basically have something like a ProtonMail account, compose an email, leave it in a drafts folder, and someone else knows to check that account, and you have two people that have access to the account. This is not super secret squirrel shit that nobody knows. People have been doing this for a long time, and they've been doing it with just about every email service out there. Security through obscurity is kind of the way it's worked. Like... Um, And there would be other ways you could do that that would even be more secure than a proton mail. But I will let you think about that for yourself because it requires just a little bit of creativity. Uh, next up on hacking, let's talk about this hack of uh, uh, JBS, which is one of the largest meat processors in the United States, was hacked uh, with ransomware. And apparently they're already back online. And much like the Columbia Pipeline, We don't know whether they actually cleaned up the problem or paid the ransomware people money to turn their shit back on. But what no one's talking about here is what was hacked. What does it mean that JBS meat processing facility was hacked and caused a shutdown? Well, the ability for a cow to come in on a cart, get a bolt through its head, be cut up into pieces and shipped out the door... Wasn't hacked. 
None of that's done with the Internet. None of that's done with computers. What was hacked was basically their ability to pay their employees and pay their suppliers and and to invoice people who owed them money. And then inventory control in and out to know what went where, when, and how it got there. So this is one of those things where we're literally having things shut down by technology that do not really require technology, and yet they're being shut down because of technology problems. In other words, there was no reason that they couldn't just keep processing meat and shipping it out the door other than, well, money. And it makes me wonder, what exactly did it mean when they said the pipeline was hacked? Did they actually hack in to a point where they had no choice but to shut down the pipeline because things like control valves and all were under the control of a hacker or was it just more about administration and billing and invoicing and what's really being hacked here and are these systems being hacked because they're softer targets than things like let's say power plants and all because this is where I'm this is where I am concerned if you hack TXU Energy, and they can't send me a bill, you can get to a point where they say, damn the torpedoes, it's an emergency, we'll figure it out later, and you can still make power. But we've seen, basically, hackers, the good guy hackers, demonstrate how they could literally cause a power plant to blow itself up. Well, there we have a problem. And I just think we need to start thinking about how we're doing these things and why we have the problems that we do. Why why you can cause a disruption to 25% of the country's meat supply. In this case, 25% of the country's beef supply. So relatively easily, it is centralization. I've said this before, but I keep being proven right over and over and over and over and over again. Every problem we had goes back to centralization. Power control, corruption, inventory management, uh, power capacity, all of it. When you take anything that most people rely on and you put control of it into the hands of a few, even if those few are benevolent is all the driven snow, is, is, is pure as the driven snow, there are still malevolent actors that now have a single place to attack. It's exactly why the United, the U.S. government was never able to shut down Bitcoin. There's no building with a big B on it. It is truly decentralized. For all its flaws, and people call it a surveillance coin, and I guess in some ways it can be. It has a lot to do with how you use it, but it, it certainly can be. It's still something they don't like. They don't want it. It's not like they've chosen to allow it to exist. If there was a place, Satoshi Inc., when all this shit started, if there was a Satoshi Inc. back then, they would have found a reason to hit it with a cruise missile. Well, whether those adversaries be government actors or just scumbags, it's a hell of a lot easier to hack an information system than it is to build and launch a cruise missile. And we have a very dangerous thing going on right now. It's Russia, Russia, Russia all over again. I have heard that we've claimed we believe the attacks came from Russia. I've seen zero evidence of that claim. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying everybody is believing the claim that it came from inside Russia with zero evidence being provided of that fact. None. The United States intelligence community says it was Russia. Oh, well, I trust them a lot, sure. But let's say it did. Russian ransomware is old news. It's, it's likely that it did come from Russia. I'm just pointing out, I have not seen any evidence. I've heard all the talking heads say it over and over again, everybody from Fox News to CNN, etc. But I have not seen any evidence presented. But let's go ahead and say for the lack of a better solution, it probably did come from Russia. 
Well, then Vladimir Putin must know about it. Really? So everything that everybody ever did that was nefarious in the United States that might have affected Russia, you know, Joe Biden knows about. I know he wouldn't remember. Donald Trump knew about. Barack Obama knew about. George Bush knew about. Every single thing. No one would ever do something just for making a bunch of money. No one would ever do that. See, here's the problem. Maybe it is government-backed. Maybe it isn't. Our country has countermeasures. Our country has countermeasures. Anything they can do to us, we can do to them, and probably more. But what? there's a lot of people, we need to do something, we need to do something. You don't do something until you know something. Because I want you to just play this out in your head. Let's just say Vladimir Putin didn't do this. Maybe Russia could do more. That's always a fenor because everybody could always do more. But could do more to help us find out who did. Maybe he just doesn't give two shits. Maybe he's got his own problems. Maybe some freaking hackers somewhere in Russia did this because, well, they like money. Shockingly, a lot of people do like money. Uh, and it's like, well, this is the way we can get some money. Pretty low risk, hard to get us here. But let's say that we decide Putin must be responsible for this, so we decide to hack, I don't know, his pipelines in Russia. What do you think he's going to do? Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's only fair. They, they think we did it to them, and we didn't. You're talking about creating an escalation with someone who has an awful lot of technology countermeasures of their own, and it's also nuclear power. You also have to ask yourself, in all of these situations, who benefits? Now, I know there's a whole belief that they want to starve the country to death and get rid of 200 million people. I'm not so big on that one. But who benefits from the United States and Russia pointing fingers at each other and blaming each other and fighting with each other? Well, I'd say a, a whole myriad of Middle Eastern countries would benefit from that, and China would benefit from that. I mean, you, you, people are starting to see China and Russia as allies One, what they are is adversaries of, of us. That, that's what we have. We have two countries who have a common adversary. They're not necessarily in bed with each other 100% of the way. They're certainly not above using each other. The truth is, I don't really know where this came from. And I don't think, I don't think anyone publicly stating they do does either. They're taking the word again of, supposedly taking the word of, by the way, of the U.S. intelligence community. And I think the day we started referring to the people that spy on us and spy on our allies and spy on the rest of the world as an intelligence community, as though there were a bunch of guys that get around and play canasta with each other, was the day we lost our collective minds for the, the last bit of them. They're not the intelligence community, right? They're not a community. Some of them are really great people that really believe in what they're doing, and some of them are scum. But they're not a community. They're individual organizations, and they all have their own agendas, and they're all driven by politics in one way or another. And they're all subject to the bureaucrat in control at the time. And I think that when we see things like this happen, the biggest thing we need to do is not be reactionary on that. Um, when COVID came out, everybody started talking almost instantly about a vaccine. It'll take three years. It'll take four years. It'll take seven. It can't be done. Operation Warp Speed comes in. It's the Trump vaccine. I'll never take it. And the same people that said that want to mandate it for everybody now that Trump's gone. It's the same vaccine made by the same people. Didn't change a bit. But vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. I don't know that anybody has asked, what happens when you rush an experimental gene therapy through that does seem to have some effectiveness, for sure. And you put unnatural pressure on a fairly low lethality virus, you know, a fraction of a percentile of people that get COVID die, and that fraction is infinitesimally small if we don't include people with serious comorbidities at advanced age and severe obesity. Right? That, that drives the death rate down to almost non-existent, certainly less than common influenza. Oh, these are all facts. You can be mad. They're all facts. 
you can go check them if you want. If you actually want to do the research instead of reading an article by some moron at MSNBC, if you actually go look at the underlying numbers, you'll see what I'm telling you is true. If you do your own version of data raking where you figure out all the people that probably would have died and all the people that were over the average age of death and all of that stuff and you pull that out of the numbers, you'll see what I'm telling you is true. What happens when we push an untested, unproven genetic therapy, which is what the two, the Moderna uh, vaccine and uh, the Pfizer vaccines are? And again, for those of you that say it's not an experimental gene therapy, Moderna says it's an experimental gene therapy in their SEC filing to the FTC when they went public. You can go, it's on page 19 of their filing for their, for IPO to the FTC. It says it's an experimental gene therapy. You can go read it. You really can. Well, so what we're saying when we do this, is we're creating an immunoresponse using a genetic modification. And I know it's not the kind of genetic modification that people think of when you use that term. It doesn't turn you into the Incredible Hawk or you know Lex Luthor or some shit. That's not what I mean. But what we're doing is we're basically triggering the immunoresponse using these tricks, this manipulation of our genetic code. And it's not actually responding to the virus itself. It's responding to something that appears like the virus. Do you follow that? That's, that's what these, these so-called vaccines do. They mimic the virus. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, from my understanding, is the old technology. We basically take a dead or weakened virus and we actually let the body respond to the virus itself. This is going to give a complete immuno response. Do you understand what I'm saying, right? Your body will respond with all of the immuno, immuno response capable for that particular virus. Everything it has, everything that can be triggered will be triggered. When we create something like these, these mRNA gene therapies, because that's what they are, it's not a vaccine, we're, we're, we're giving the body a target that mimics the actual problem, not the whole problem. So to me, it's very likely that you would have, the only way I could describe this is like a vaccine with holes in it. And then if you... If you have a hole and the virus begins to go into decline, it will begin its own mutations. And, of course, there's natural mutations of this virus, which I think, by the way, so nobody gets upset, is probably a unnatural virus in the first place. I, I, I think the Wuhan lab leak theory is the most plausible thing that happened. All right, they, they, they screwed around with this thing. And somehow or another, they let it out, or they did it on purpose. I think my gut would be it's more likely that they screwed up than they intentionally released it. They certainly tried to cover it up. But once it was out, then it will go through natural mutations. That's why we have these strains, and we can say, you know, this is the European strain, or this is the, the China strain, or this is whatever, the Indian strain, or whatever. And they have different levels of, um, basically, contagion is what, what the claim is. Now, I don't trust any of these people, so you understand. But if we, if we take it to be what they say it is, that, you know, the Indian variant is more contagious. It's not more deadly. No one's actually made a claim that any of these are more deadly. They extrapolate that it must be more deadly if more people get it and a percentage die. The same percentage, more people, higher death, blah, 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 blah. Ignoring what flattened the curve meant in the first place. It's going to do what it's going to do anyway, over time. Um... When we look at it that way, when we take countermeasures against a virus, we know we get these mutations. And I'm just saying, and I've been worried about this for a long time, and I've talked about it before. I never really went deeper into it, though. My gut is there is significant potential for something far more dangerous, lethal, infectious to actually be created through vaccinations themselves. Because we've never done this before. 
And we're not vaccinating a person. See, this technology seems to have, I've said this before too, extensive potential to create personalized individual vaccines in the treatment of specific cancers. Basically a targeted cancer vaccine. Bill has cancer XYZ PDQ. We extract Bill's XYZ DP, uh, cancer cells. We develop in a couple days this response to it, this viral, uh, this, this vaccine to it, to charge up Bill's immune system, to make Bill's immune system see Bill's cancer as a problem and attack that particular cancer. And if it's incomplete, Bill's still better off because that cancer got knocked out by his immune system. But cancer's not a virus. It doesn't spread human to human. Now you're talking about an infectious disease that's, that's an airborne virus. It's not droplets in your nasal pharynx, okay? Right? It, it, it's, it's in the air that spreads human to human that's nowhere near as contagious as they've made you believe, but it's pretty damn contagious. And now you're using this therapy... And you're putting pressure on the virus that's not whole pressure. And it's not whole human immunoresponse. It's partial immunoresponse. What is the most likely adaptation that the virus would take? Whatever the whole is in the immunoresponse. And my gut is there has to be a whole. Based on my understanding of how the technology works, there has to be a whole. Because there's parts of that virus that the inoculated person is not ever forced to develop immunity for. And in there lies the whole. You can call me crazy. I have no proof of this. But this is just basic logic being applied here. Next up, I wanted to remind you guys, I talked about how they have these extre this extremist training, is what they call it, in the military now. And I had all these military officers and senior NCOs get in touch with me over a several-month period. And they all said it worked the same way. You have this group of people come in. They're all minorities, by the way. They talk about this extremist chaining. They're going to root it out. And they say things like, we're going to go through all your social media. And if you made a post even five years ago, and it was just like being really enthusiastically pro-Second Amendment, that could be enough to leave you an extremist and throw you out of the military. And I said, it's all a psyop. They're not going to throw anybody out for this. This is all bullshit. They're basically demoralizing these men and pushing them toward leaving on their own. Because if you tell somebody who's in the military that took an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, we're terminating your employment because you said you're pro an amendment to the Constitution that you swore an oath to uphold and defend, then that lawyer's going to be flying an F-16 jet, and the guy that got fired is probably driving an M1 Abrams. I mean, it's going to be that bad of a lawsuit, and the military's going to lose. And that's the short version. But I said the reason I feel that way is I heard from all these people, well over a dozen officers and about the same number of like E7s, E8s, E9s, senior NCOs. And they all said the same thing at the end of the discussion in a very defeated way. They're going to throw me out. And I said that, that, that tells me that was exactly what they, they knew exactly what they were doing. Whoever formed this program, by the way, should have the shit beat out of them for being a scumbag traitor to their country. Whoever's behind this should have the living shit beat out of you. If, you're, if, if anybody ever gets this to you, I think somebody should beat the living shit out of you for developing a psyop against our military. And that, that, I mean, traitors get way worse than a shit beat out of them, I'm just saying. But this is what a colonel sent me. I'm an active duty colonel. I want to say I think your analysis on how a number of career military feel, folks feel is correct. Undermining trust in the ranks by instilling fear that we would be reported for wrong think is more of a threat than anything our adversaries can throw at us. The solution at the individual level is realizing we are not alone in our concerns. Isolating ourselves makes us irrelevant. Staying connected to our military community network, regardless of whether we stay in or retire, is the first step in restoring confidence and trust. Isn't community one of your key principles? Absolutely, sir. Uh, staying connected to our other communities, church, neighborhoods, etc. will also help. We do have to be careful, though. They are looking to make an example that fits the narrative. I personally find it somewhat reassuring that career officers and NCOs are categorized as an obstacle that must be marginalized. I agree. I could go on about this subject. I've been thinking about it a lot for the last year, but I don't want to send too long of an email. Thanks for addressing the subject. 
uh, from an undisclosed location. And I won't say anything about even his man's first name because I'm sure that would be a good reason to make an example of somebody. Um, here's another one. This one is a sergeant, first class. It says, you're spot on about the military PSYOP thing. I'm at 14 years. Uh, I just wanted to provide a little more detail on the how behind the muzzling of us older folks. It is driven by the new EO policy and generation of easily offended. They drag you through the mud. They won't kick you out, but instead kill the rest of your career and constantly remind you. What can you do then? Leave your retirement or just quietly deal with it? I can't leave for another three years putting me at 17, but I might try my best to finish out. That, again, shows it works, by the way. Uh, I feel that many cops are in a similar position. As much as I dislike them, I get it. And, uh, again, I won't use any names or anything here. This is, uh, again, I agree with the colonel that it is encouraging. It is encouraging that they actually understand that these people are an obstacle. Because that means they are an obstacle. And that means, at least for now, they're an obstacle in place. I haven't heard from a single person that's been through this, though, that hasn't basically said the same thing. I'm done. As soon as I can get what I got coming, I'm out of here. Which means it's working. And I think what we're doing is we're creating a military that will be completely incapable of doing its job and it's being done so perfectly, I can see no other motive than to do just that. I think the goal of the people that have the reins of power right now is for the U.S. to no longer be the most powerful nation on the planet. They don't even want us to be a world leader. They want us to be a second-class, second-rate nation. It's time for the ball to swing it again. And I know that sounds crazy, but they've done it throughout history. Some of the wealthiest families in the world have been wealthy for hundreds and hundreds of years. They've swung the ball. They've moved to different seats of power over time. And the more global they become, the less they benefit from any one nation truly being powerful. And the more they benefit from vulcanization of the entire global community. That's, that's where we're going here. Next up, and might as well stay in the world of COVID here for a little bit more. Um, Dr. Fauci, in my opinion, I referred to him as Dr. Fraudzi, is about to go under the bus hard. And it's not just going to be Fox News that puts him under the bus. Fox News has been, you know, clipping him with the fender here and there throughout this whole thing. MSNBC, CNN, etc. I'm going to take this guy. And they're going to throw him under the bus, and they're going to drive over him, and then they're going to back up over him, and they're going to drive over him again until he is rubbed out like a stain on the ground, and then they're going to drive away and forget that they were ever on his side. And then, at the, end, the very end of it all, they're going to leave you with, and it's all Trump's fault. The reason we didn't know he was a shitbag is because Trump. Yeah which is what they've already done with the Wuhan lab leak, right? Well, the reason we assumed it was not true is because Trump said it was, and he had lost all his credibility by then. I mean, this is literally what these people have said. Now, why do I think this is coming for Fauci? Well, under Freedom of Information Act, a whole assload of Dr. Fraudzi's emails with various people throughout the entire pandemic has been released. And so far, what, what organizations like CNN are doing is continuing to bless him as St. Fauci and talk about how hard his life was, how hard he tried, how he was tireless, how he worked so hard, how he put in so many hours, how he had to fight corruption amongst his... Like, just like, oh my God, he's so wonderful. This is what they always do before they crucify somebody. That's what they always do before they slaughter somebody. They build you up before they tear you down. And the cursory look that I've taken at some of these emails shows incredible plausibility that he thought the lab leak was credible long ago, at least potentially. 
that he was directly communicated with about the effectiveness of treatments, uh, including high-dose vitamin C, including ivermectin, including hydroxychloroquine, and that that was intentionally ignored. And it, it keeps going. And I'm not going to dig any to, into any of it deeply today. I don't want this, this, this episode to go that long. But I just want to go out there and say I think it's coming. And I think that the problem with that is a lot of people will go, good. I mean, I'm sure most of the people in this audience do not have a high opinion of Mr. You still might have virus in your nasal pharynx, right, you know. Uh, and I don't either. And I will not shed a tear um, when the bus crushes him into a pulp. However, what, who, who benefits? We're back to the same question with the cyber attack stuff, right? Who benefits by this? Well, everybody but Fraudzi. That's not on your side. CNN, MSNBC, etc. They're going to make him a fall guy. He's going to be a scapegoat. And they're still going to say, well, you know, it doesn't matter how I got here. We still have to worry. We could still all die. And they'll keep up this mass psyop on the American people. It's it's not the good thing some people will think it is. There'll be so many people cheering when the bus comes for Fraudzi. It won't really change anything. It won't really matter. And this is the big thing for my community I want you to understand. It's still not going to wake up your Uncle Bob. It's still not going to wake up the mass Karens. It's still not going to do it. Right now, any thinking, logical American who bought into this should doubt everything. Should doubt everything. From, from just what's been admitted so far. But they don't. They're still out there. I've seen them. You have too. Um, last little segment today. I haven't said anything about this publicly yet. But as you guys know, we love our dogs. And our dog Max has been with us almost as long as TSP has been around. We, we got him in the second year of the show, but it wasn't even a second full year. It was in 2009. He was already a couple years old. And as German shepherds go, you get up in the neighborhood of like almost 15 years old. It's pretty old, especially for a big, huge frame German shepherd. This dog, guys, was 150 plus pounds at his prime, and he was not fat. He was just that big. And we loved him. And we had to put him down. We put him down on Saturday over Memorial Day weekend. And uh, it crushed me, but it really crushed my wife. It was really hard, and it's part of why I hadn't really talked about it much yet, letting her kind of process and deal with it. He was her only dog that she ever had that was really her dog. I'm not even sure she really gets that yet. I know I've said it to her, but I'm not sure she has. Like, You know, we've had dogs in the house for our, our entire relationship almost. But he was her dog that she always wanted, a German Shepherd. They never really had a dog that was her dog before me, and she didn't have dogs growing up, and uh, it was really hard on her. And what made it so difficult was he was pretty immobile, but he was all there mentally. Every dog I've ever had to put down, I never doubted it was time, and this one was one of those ones we had to really, really uh, do some soul-searching on. And uh, with consultation with our vet, et cetera. And, you know, the upside of it is, guys, he went as, as good as an animal can. Um, we didn't take him to the vet. We didn't put him in a car. Our vet came here. We took him outside, and it was a nice sunny day. And he sat in the shade, and we gave him a sedative. And that took about 10 minutes before he kind of fell out and went to sleep. Uh, and then he, you know, put him down with a barbiturate. And um, it was hard. It was hard. And the reason I'll talk about it on the air is, one, I think it's good in cleansing. And, and two, I know so many of y'all have followed our lives, and, and one way or another, you, you know who Max is. And many, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of you have been here uh, at one time or another for workshops and have had the good pleasure to meet Mr. Max. And uh, it was a hard day. I'll just say that it was a hard day to let a family member go. I also say that because there are people that really grieve when they when they lose a pet. And then they feel, I don't know, bad about themselves. They feel that, you know, I shouldn't feel this bad over a dog. And what I told my wife, because she was kind of dealing with some of that, she said, I never felt this bad over just a dog before. Love is love. And family's family. And uh, the way I put it to the vet, 
when he was leaving, he said, you know, what she's feeling is perfectly normal. I said, yeah, I know. And he said, uh, it isn't easy, and it isn't supposed to be easy. And what I said to him was, if it's easy, you probably didn't deserve the dog in the first place. And uh, I'll just throw out there that if you don't have dogs in your life and you can, think about it, because they bring something to our lives that's uh, it's a whole other level that I don't think we're capable of experiencing only as humans. I think that if there is an animal that was made for man, it was the dog. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if uh, you want to help support the show and the work that we do, one way you can do that is by becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. Uh, it's not expensive. It's 50 bucks a year. It's about 18 cents an episode if you do the math. Uh, so if you think the show's worth a couple dimes, it's, it's probably worth doing. But then you get a bunch of discounts, and it pays for your membership many times over. Uh, I've had people tell me they easily save three to $400 a year using their discounts on a $50 membership. Are you kidding? That's just a good ROI. Even if you didn't like me, it's still worth doing. Uh, so check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Next up, remember, you can always support uh, the show by just doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, the item of the day today is one I mentioned recently in my show on 15 Fishing Hacks, and I forgot to put a link in it. And I'm going to take most of the things that are uh, in that show that I didn't put a link to because it was one of those days, uh, and I'm going to bring them around as items of the day. This one is the Pop-Up Bait Bucket. Uh, now it's really actually a laundry hamper. And I don't remember who I uh, found out about this from. Uh, there was a guy on MeWe when I ran this today on the social media that said he first saw this being used this way on a YouTube channel called Catfish and Carp. I watched that guy's channel. That may be where I found it. But quite a few people have used these this way. And basically you take this pop-up mesh laundry hamper, throw a couple of rocks in it, and sit it in the water and let's say, you know, a foot, 16 inches water, and it's about two foot tall. So it's sitting up above the water, and the water flows through it, and you put your fish in there, and they don't die. It's like a live well that folds up and fits in your fishing bag. It's about 16 inches in diameter. It folds up really super easy, opens up really super fast, and it's made for being a laundry hamper is exactly what it's for. And it has a ton of reviews, and uh, it's like you know 4.8 stars or something like that. So it works good for the intended purpose, but it works great for fishing. And I have even have a little video, and I have a pretty decent write-up on it. Uh, now, my buddy Roy commented on the video and said, I wonder if you could take like a pool noodle, put it around the rim of the top, and float it, and use it in deeper water uh, the same way. I don't see any reason you couldn't. Uh, a lot of guys do this to do kayak fishing with regular laundry baskets, the more square ones or what have you. Uh, so it probably would work for that as well. But these are great. Um, 20 bucks, and you've got basically a pop-up live well that goes anywhere you go. And uh, it is available at tspaz.com. And if you want it for a hamper, it apparently works pretty well for that, too. I even have a little video with this one. Uh, but you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Time for our song of the day today. Um, this is my choice on this song, and I've played it before, but probably years and years ago. It's by Warren Zevin, and it's called Muhammad's Radio. And if you've never heard the song before, it's nothing like you would you would ascertain from the title. The way this song came about was Warren was at a party, and there uh, it was a Halloween party with costumes, and there was a mentally challenged man dressed in a turban with a ghetto blaster on his shoulder. And uh, from that, he got uh, Muhammad's radio, and then he kind of wrote this song the next day. Um, but it's really not really about that. And it does use some military references as well, but it's not really about that. It's really about life in general and the way life is for people at the time, mid-70s in the United States, where people like you know couldn't afford to buy meat and couldn't afford gasoline and everybody was always telling them something they already know and you know the government's getting in your business. And Does that sound like 2021? See, what made me just picked this song was the one we had yesterday about being nostalgic for the past and how things used to be better. I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we just think, well, you know, 50 years ago, America was a better place and we didn't have all these problems. We've always had all these problems. There's always been people seeking to control others. And so 
what we need to focus on is a solution, not some misguided belief that things just were different in the past. The problems are the same. The techniques evolve. But it all goes back to people wanting to control you, tell you something you already know. Now, you can let your anger and resentment flow, as we hear in the song. You can just not give a shit and turn to music, which is part of what this song's about. Or you can do something about it. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Everybody's restless and they got no place to go. Someone's always trying to tell them something they already know. So their anger and resentment flow. But don't it make you want to drop all night long? Mohammed's radio. I heard somebody sing. problems too He will surely take them out on you In walks the village idiot and his face is all aglow He's been up all night listening to Mohammed's radio Trying to make ends meet Work all day Still can't pay The price of gasoline And me Alas, their lives Are incomplete Don't it make you Want to roll All night long Mohammed's radio Just might just come. Just be right. I heard the general whispering to his aide de camp.